This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him that he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who are incarcerated here. I am Anthony, and I'm in the studio here with Sky. Hello. Yeah, yeah, we've got some uh, interesting stories here for you today. When do we not? Yeah, no. right. They're all. <laughs> I hope. I hope they're as interesting to our listeners. I, as well, I know that's the thing I was thinking about it today, where we like proposed that they were going to be forty-five minute episodes, but like you and I cannot shut up about all the <laughs> stuff we find, and so they end up being like hour and a half. Yeah. Sorry, guys, but oh. yeah, hopefully you find them as interesting as yes. we do. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right, well, I will go first today. Okay. Um, So I'm going to break the mold a little bit. I'm going to look at um, one of our more recent, and when I say that, it was still over 50 years ago, but (laughs) (laughs) she is one of our latest, one of our later ladies, number 11230, Dorothy Ruth Cox. She was in for issuing a check without funds, and I was thinking about this because there's a couple different crimes that all have to do with like writing checks. So I just want to like bear- clear that up. So forgery mm-hmm. is where you sign someone else's name, yes. whether the check is made out to you or whether the check is made out to someone else. That's forgery, mm-hmm. uh, especially with women. Like eight, like probably sixty percent of our women were in for forgery. Yeah. So I'll talk a lot about forgery. Then there's issuing a check without funds. There's also one that's like issuing a check with no account or something yeah. like that those all all basically you write a check like you would write it normally write a check and then you tr- you cash it and then when they send it to the bank they find out there's no account attached to that check yeah. and so that's what she was in for and so we have less of those but we still do have some of them mm-hmm. most women were in for money related crimes yes. as we will find out now she's kind of a small woman 5'3 113 pounds this is a reference for all of my old movie people but she sort of looks like margaret hamilton who is the wicked witch of the west but just like obviously without her witch makeup um <laughs> so that's kind of what she looks like to me um she's just like this cute little old lady uh, actually she's not that old she's only 50 when she comes in anyway so sources mostly were just her inmate file and ancestry.com um, her inmate file pretty much had everything I needed to know, which I'm very grateful for. In the 60s, yeah. they took enormous social histories on these inmates, mm-hmm. which give you so many details that even I can't fit them in podcast episodes. <laughs> so if you guys are interested, please go look at the archives and yeah. check those files out because they're super neat. All right. So Dorothy Ruth Cox, she was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana on July 15th, 1912. Her her real name was Dorothy Ruth Cyphers. Her parents were Jerome and Josephine M. Cyphers. She was the oldest of two daughters. She had one uh, younger sister. Her name was Norma Marie. 
Her father was a traveling salesman. He often took the daughters on trips with them. And so Dorothy, um, she remembered, quote, a very pleasant childhood because she just got to travel everywhere with her dad. And like what little kid wouldn't love to do that? They moved a lot. Um, She claimed that she attended 18 different schools. Wow. But still somehow managed to, like, stay on track in school. She said she graduated high school at 15 in Chicago. 15. The other reason for that is because she is actually super, super smart. Yeah. Um, And I will actually get into that in just a second. But she is, like, wicked smart. So it would make sense that that she graduated. So she says graduates high school at 15 in Chicago. Her parents divorced about a year later when she's 16. She says that her mother was really strict. They didn't really get along, but her father was kind of like her buddy, which makes sense. Like mm-hmm. he's, she's going to have a lot of positive memories with him. And if the mother is the disciplinarian, then the dad can get away with being like the fun guy, <laughs> especially once you're divorced. So after she graduates high school at 15, she starts attending Northwestern University in, in Chicago or in Illinois. It's not in Chicago but she studies business administration. Now, as I said, she was apparently incredibly smart. Her file included an IQ test. Sometimes files will include IQ tests. Sometimes they won't. She apparently had an IQ of 126. The top score is 140. Wow. So she's in like top percentile. It's also um, important to note um, Northwestern is a prestigious school Mm -hmm. today. I'm assuming even in the 1920s it was. She was one of our only female inmates to really have even ever attended college and much less prestigious one like Northwestern. In 2019, Northwestern is consistently ranked in the top 20 colleges in the country and top 30 in the world. And this is in the 1920s when women hardly applied for college, much less got in and attended. So she is very smart. Now, she says that she was expelled from Northwestern after she got married. What? Right. I, I I haven't figured that, that out yet because I don't, I don't, I, How again, I mean, 1920s, yeah. maybe that was different back then, but yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure plenty of women got married and were in college. There must be something yeah. more to that. The only thing I can think yeah. of is that she dropped out and maybe had a bad experience and so then was like, yeah. they expelled me. I, cause That's I, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. So she only attended for two years and then she was quote expelled <laughs> and she married Lyle W. Cox, who was a, he was also a traveling salesman. So that kind of makes sense. Uh-huh. Um, they married on Halloween, 1929, oh October 31st. They had one son <laughs> who was born just over a year later, December 24th. So Christmas Eve, they're big in the holidays, I guess, in their family. Um, December 24th, 1930. Did I say his name? His name was Lyle W. Cox Jr. Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah. They, I wonder, they, were, they must have been pretty eccentric. <laughs> yes. They're they're kind of funny because in her file, sometimes they, they just use the same name, Lyle W. Cox. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I'm sorry, is this her son or is this her husband? Because oh, it's the same exact name. Right. Like usually they'll change like the middle name. Oh, it's like literally so the same. I think it's Lyle <laughs> William Cox. Yeah. And you're like, what's, sorry, can you choose another name? I came across <laughs> the same issue and okay. went to that. Okay, okay. Yeah. So Lyle Jr., he was pretty sick. He suffered from epilepsy, and he was a term that they used. It was called spastic, mm. um, which means it was an early it was an early term that they used to mean cerebral palsy. Yeah. Here's a fun fact. I told you about this already, yeah. but I don't know if our American audiences know. And I got down this rabbit hole, and I was really fascinated that the term spaz that we used to like, especially with like little kids who are like running around, and we were like, mm-hmm. oh, he's such a spaz. <laughs> 
in England, that's like one of the most offensive terms when it comes to mental disabilities. Yeah. So don't go to England and say that. Oh. It's like, it's it's very similar to like the R word here. Mm. So don't go and say that. But yeah. I, d- I do think it's interesting the 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 way that it's shifted in, in our different countries. Because yeah. for us, like, you know, how, I've said that about how many of my cousins and relatives right, are just like, right. oh, what a spaz. Yeah. Or like, you even say it about yourself, but like, do not say it <laughs> those, in England. Those different terms, like the word pants, you know, yeah. that's, that is a like, that's oh, true. don't say pants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So he, anyway, he, epileptic had cerebral palsy. So mm-hmm. he was pretty sick. Oh. Uh, her husband ends up giving up his salesman job and they moved to California because they got married in Illinois mm-hmm. or in, in Indiana. They moved to California and he takes up, uh, takes over the distributorship of the Los Angeles Times. And that brings in a fairly comfortable income for them. Um, and then I think her brother-in-law, so the husband of her sister ends up working at the Los Angeles Times as well. So very familiar with the LA Times. Is this in like the 30s or? Mm, so yes. Yeah, I think it would have been mid to late 30s and then okay. early 40s. Interesting. Yeah. Now, it doesn't we don't really know why, but once they started to started to have a fairly comfortable income, she started to really like nice things. And to get nice things, you have to have money. And they had a decent amount, but they're oh. not celebrities, they're not super rich. And so she starts to live beyond their means. Oh. She ends up putting the family into debt and the couple divorce in 1951 because of this. Now, she also claims the reason for the divorce was a quote small blonde. <laughs> but but I think she eventually was like, no, it's because I was spending too much money. So she kind of ends up being a wreck after the divorce, um, which I think is understandable. They had been married uh, for almost, I think, for like 15 plus years Jeez. or so, pretty close to that. And so to lose all of a sudden your mm. husband, you also are financially unstable because you haven't been working. Mm. You also have a very ill son. Right. And so yeah. she kind of ends up being a wreck. And she tries various office jobs. She even works as a skip tracer. Do you know what that is? I have no idea. A skip tracer is someone who is like in charge of tracking people down when they like when they skip town because like, they owe money oh, or something. Or almost like a PI. Yeah. <laughs> so she ends up working as that for a little bit, but her jobs don't really last long and she has to resort to other ways of getting money. So in 1952, she is arrested in San Diego, California as Dorothy Ruth Cyphers for forgery and for a traffic warrant. She's placed on a 12-year probation, which is the longest probation I've ever heard of in my wow. life. Wow. How much did she forge? Any idea? I should have looked, um, but it, I, I don't think it was. So she okay. has to pay $200 in restitution, so probably okay. that much. Yeah. Or yeah, some close, yeah. close to that. or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, wow. So, yeah, 12-year probation. So then, understandably, Jeez. she violates that probation because that's <laughs> an entire decade of your life that you have to be on probation. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. And you're already having money issues, yep. you know, this, this whole cycle of like mm-hmm. poverty and mm-hmm. ah, Absolutely. Cr- criminality. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's super, it is a real thing. So then in July, 1954, she violates her probation after she prepares a fraudulent insurance claim while working for the Ryan Aeronautical Corporation in San Diego. Whoa. So part of her job at this corporation was looking through insurance claims. Mm-hmm. And so she had found fraudulent ones so she knew what passed off and what didn't and so she thought that she'd be able to to pass this insurance claim off so she 
she it's either for the word the claim that she forges is either worth 417 or 427 dollars don't know why those are very specific numbers but that's she remembers it's one of those two numbers (laughs) and so she's arrested six or seven months after she files this claim Uh and then obviously she had violated her probation so she has to serve six months to 14 years for the original forgery charge and then six months to three years for preparing a fraudulent insurance claim those sentences were going to run concurrently at a california institution for women in corona california (laughs) she's released on parole in 1956 Mm -hmm. Getting released that early for women is, especially in the 1950s, is fairly common. And and it really, we've seen people get released for doing much more in much less time. So two years is, is plenty of time for her to, to serve for that. So she violates her parole when she leaves the state of California. <laughs> okay. I think she claimed that she tried to get in touch with someone and was like, I want to leave the state. And they never got back to her, so she just left. Yeah. So um, while she claims that during her run from the law, basically out of California, she marries a man named Thomas W. Wagner in Tijuana, Mexico. But authorities make it clear this marriage is not legal in the United States. They ended up leaving each other after like two weeks anyway. Geez. So after being missing for two years, the California authorities finally issue a warrant for Dorothy's arrest. But she remains on the run until 1963. There's not really any oh trace of her gosh. until then. She finally resurfaces in Fort Smith, Arkansas on January 5th, 1963 for a, quote, no good check. So, you know, like I talked about, it's just one that doesn't have an account. Mm -hmm. So she's arrested. She's given a three-year suspended sentence. But she's not kept in Arkansas custody for long because she's wanted in Idaho for another no good check. So here's what happened. On August 12th, 1962, so uh, about four or five months before she's arrested in Arkansas, she is in Boise. She's basically just been traveling around the country, probably forging and issuing checks that have no money at all. And now she needs a car. So she goes to a place called Holly's Used Cars, Inc. at 2409 Fairview, which I looked up is just a stretch of highway now. She puts down a $400 down payment on a 1958 Plymouth station wagon, which is very stereotypical when you think of like a 1950 station wagon. Just picture that in your head. That's what it is. She makes out the check to Dorothy R. Wagner, um, which would have been that name from the guy she married in Mexico. And then she signs it with the name J.K. Laughlin. J.K. Laughlin is a real name. It was the name of her father's auditor, who was now deceased. So uh, it's just a name that she remembered from her youth and and signed it with that. With the $400 check, she takes the car, skips town. Obviously, you wouldn't stay in town after you, you you issued this check that doesn't have any money. Authorities also find out that she wrote six checks worth about $110 at various grocery stores and markets throughout the Boise area. So she's wanted at this point for basically $500 worth of useless checks. She's driving. The car breaks down in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She has to write another check because she doesn't, but it doesn't have any money mm-hmm. uh, for $134 to fix it. And then she leaves. So the state of New Mexico issues a warrant for her arrest. Her journey finally ends in Fort Smith, Arkansas. The reason she goes there is because these are the last known whereabouts of her son, mm-hmm. who's in his 30s by now. He's in and out of hospitals. So she knows that this is where he is. This is why she wants a car. This is why she wants to get there. <sighs> so here she forges a tech for, do you want to guess how much? that's it and as we know she's arrested she said that her son eventually was given basically a bus ticket for los angeles his father had sent him bus fare and i think the hospitals were just better out there so after she's arrested he's placed on a bus and he gets out to california now i just feel for her because 
as I said, like this is not about her breaking the law to break the law. This mm-hmm. is about her trying to break the law to get to her son who is very ill and who can't fend for himself. You know, some people some people might ask like, well, I don't, you know, what did she expect? She's breaking the law. She's going to get put in jail. And that is true. Mm -hmm. But I just don't think that the answer is as easy as that. She had once said that even though she would like to remarry, she said, quote, if I could do anything to help my son, that would be my first consideration. She loves him. Of course she does. She's his mother and he's ill. And, and even though she's, you know, doing these things, it seems that she's doing it to, to help him. Is her ex-husband involved in his life? Does I mean a little bit. Okay. I think she's the one who got kind of custody, uh, oh, as far as I can tell. Gotcha. Um, the the ex still lives in California. Okay. And so I think, he, like I said, he's the one who sent the money to get him to California. Yeah, so yeah. she can at least call him and say, like, you know, our son needs money, but I don't yeah. think she'd be able to get money for herself. This is kind of why she breaks the law, and it is is really heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, you know that it has <laughs> to end this way. So she is sentenced to 30 months at the Idaho State Penitentiary for issuing a check without funds. She goes in on March 5th, 1963. While she's incarcerated, the states of California and New Mexico both hold detainers against her for when she is released. California issues it first, so theirs take precedent. Also during her incarceration, on April 3rd, 1964, Dorothy, along with at least one other inmate, but I actually think it may have been the whole group of them because I've went, written one other biography where this happened uh-huh. but I haven't gotten the rest of the inmates that are around them. They are removed to the custody of the Ada County Sheriff and transported to the Ada County Jail for quote security reasons. Uh-huh. But Dorothy is just like the sweetest old lady who like just is writing checks, checks without funds right. yeah, yeah. and so why in the world is she a security risk? Um, I don't, I have not figured out the the reasons behind that but like i said i know there is at least one other woman who again like i think hers i don't even remember what her crime was but it wasn't anything violent it was probably forgery she was removed for security reasons um she her and as well as this other inmate that i read about and maybe all the rest of them they are made to write a letter to the warden asking them to be returned to the women's ward so this is just all her letter says it says quote i request to be returned to the ww the women's ward at isp i shall do my utmost to avoid trouble and observe rules and regulations set down by the isp rule book and the matron (laughs) and that's it there, there's got to yeah. be some mm-hmm. little thing that we have to Yeah, we just have there. to figure it out. Um, <laughs> that, that wasn't the time when they tossed everything out into the yard and started burning it, right? Uh, who's in the women's ward? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I haven't gotten to that part. Oh, of... there's there's one woman who kind of, and then she was soon after sent to uh, Blackfoot to the state okay. hospital, but she ended up burning most of the women's ward oh, furniture yeah, and yeah. bedding and... <laughs> I haven't gotten to her yet. Okay, but, all right. So, uh, it, but it may it may be this time because like if I haven't gotten to her yet, I've gotten to most everyone through yeah. the 50s. So okay. it probably is around this time. That would make sense. <sighs> See, Anthony still knows more about the women's no. ward than I do. <laughs> That's just, that story always, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so Dorothy and the other female inmates transferred are returned to the women's ward a few months later in June 1964. Now here's something kind of sweet. So, oh. um, um, her and her son exchanged letters constantly throughout her incarceration. So she wrote him 35 letters and he wrote her 48. What? Which I think is so sweet. Oh. 
He, at the time, was kept at the Patton State Hospital, which was a hospital in California that was originally used for mentally ill or permanently disabled people. Mm. So he was being kept there, and they just sent letters back and forth the whole time. We don't have any of them. I wish we did, because it would be yeah. so sweet. But yeah. but that we at least have records of, of letters written and, and received. So, uh, And this is, a, again, another really sweet thing. She said, upon her intake to the prison, she said that the only companion she had was her son. Oh, it's just yeah. like it breaks my heart yeah. like she really was just doing it to be with him Dorothy is uh, released from the Idaho State Penitentiary on November 3rd 1964 after serving one year seven months and 29 days she's then picked up by California authorities to serve her time there I don't know if she is then later picked up to serve time in New Mexico if New Mexico just said forget it it's not worth it that did happen sometimes mm-hmm. um, a lot of times detainers would be dropped where they were just like you'll take care of them yeah ISP files don't go that far um, so we just know that she was picked up by California don't know if she was picked up by New Mexico the last thing we know of Dorothy Cox is that she died in Los Angeles, California on October 17th, 1976. So she would have been 64. And then her son died less than a year later oh. in August 1977 in oh. Los Angeles. So they were just connected at right. every point. Yeah. Uh, and I just, it's, it just is heartbreaking and, and also really touching to, to, to get humanity to her you know it's so easy to look at this 50 year old woman and say like oh you were issuing checks without money huh Uh -huh. uh but it was like all for her son and she really loved him and and wanted to do anything to to make sure that he was well taken care of and and if it meant her taking care of him then so be it that's Uh, a really kind of a sweet story so that's dorothy Uh, ruth cox yeah number one one two three zero you know and i wonder with her education Mm -hmm. if she was kind of an educator in the women's ward Mm -hmm. if she was like teaching lessons or writing poetry we should we should see if she wrote things in the in the the clock clock. yeah Yeah. (laughs) jinx (laughs) stop (laughs) okay all right you all just experienced a moment Please like and follow our Facebook page, Old Idaho Penitentiary. From there, you can connect with us directly by joining the Behind Gray Walls podcast group, where you can find the mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, supplementary images of the penitentiary, and discussions between group members. We'd love to see you there. If you like the podcast, please consider making a donation. You can do that by going to store.history.idaho.gov donation.aspx. Be sure to click the Behind Gray Walls podcast tab on the left side of the page. Any donation amount is appreciated and will go toward improving the quality of this podcast, enabling us to bring you the stories that we love and that we hope you love too. So, I also have a a check writer. Okay. And this is a young man named Frank F. Jones, number 2479. That is a very common name, uh-huh. and it took me, I still am uncertain, but the best thing that I found was uh, on Ancestry, his draft card, because uh-huh. this was the time of World War One, yes. and so his draft card that he wrote, and it was signed off by Warden Decay, because he was oh, incarcerated cool. when he had to sign up for the draft, uh, he said he was born on April 3rd, 1895, in Cairo, Illinois, and... Uh, 
as I said, due to his common name, Frank Jones. And he wrote that his father's name was also Frank F. Jones. Oh, that's rude. Yeah. That's so terrible. There was, there was only one ancestry file that could have been mm. him, but mm. I... I'm still uncertain. Yeah. And it was actually Frank E. Jones, and oh. the father's name was Frank E. Jones. Oh, and I hate that. Yeah, oh. so that's as much as I know about his past. But I know his crime. Uh, in the fall of 1916, so he moves from Cairo, Illinois, with his family to Seattle. And then in the fall of 1916, he is living in Boise, and he had mm-hmm. been there for about six months. He's 22 years old, and he decides to go on a spending spree. Oh. Yes. Yeah, so most forgery cases, these these folks would write these bad checks and they would collect money from all these businesses and then hide the money knowing mm. that they'd be incarcerated. And oh, because it's a nonviolent crime, yeah. they know we'll probably get out in about a year. Yeah. And then I can go collect on my payment and then I won't have to write bad checks, you know, for probably another year or so wow. and then do the same thing. And it was huh. just this cycle. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, there are, there are a lot of inmates that that go along this and then they use their age or their sex or their children Mm. uh to get even shorter sentences uh so i think frank is not that smart because most (laughs) of these checks were for under three dollars yes so he (laughs) this 1916 fall he writes six small checks in the core of downtown Boise. November 8th, 1916, he forges the name of his boss, Samuel Romans, who's the foreman of the Peasley Company and a prominent Boisean. And he writes at this place called the Interurban Confectionery for $2.55. He's forging a check to get some candy. Exactly. It's it's this little bakery candy shop. Yum. And, you know, this is a 1912 advertisement from them. 35 cent special candy sale every Saturday and Sunday. 20 varieties of chocolates and bonbons for 35 cents yes. on the pound. So, you know, he probably, this $2.55, it was probably 35 cents yeah. that he got you yeah, know, so $2 back sort of thing. Yeah. So that's his first one. And then, uh, and the Peasley Company is actually, it's still around. Oh. It's been, it's been... Uh, a storage and, and moving company since 1890. And I actually worked with them like 12 years ago when I worked for the Boise School District um, during a summer job. And yeah, they, they were helping store and sell all these desks and things at, at the old Fort Boise School, right oh, there cool. on Fort Boise, the elementary school. Uh, the inner urban confectionery mm-hmm. was on 707 Bannock, which is like the tonic hair and skin bar. It's, it's between Thomas Hammer and the St. Lawrence Gridiron now. Okay. Um, so it's that old building right there. Okay. So he stops there. He does that. Then he goes to the uh, Whitehead Drugstore, which is on 815 Main Street, and wrote a $3 bad check. This is like where the Grove Plaza is, kind of where okay. Lucky Fins is. Okay. And then he went to a restaurant, which they didn't name the restaurant at any point. Okay. But he paid for a 15-cent meal with a $2.75 Uh, Can you imagine a meal costing 15 cents? Absolutely. There is nothing in this world that costs 15 cents anymore. No. I cannot imagine. That's crazy. That seems amazing. Yeah. So he walks out of this restaurant with $2.50 in his pocket. So I guess then when we say that these checks are worth less than $5, that actually is a decent amount of money. It's not substantial, but it's like like in the $25, I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. It's not. It'll get you by for a couple days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if your meal is 15 cents, yeah, yeah that's yeah. going to buy you like 10 more meals. Yeah. 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 So okay. 
they're all five of the six checks are from Pacific National Bank, and they bounce the following. Mm. So this is on a weekend. This is okay. a Saturday. Oh, okay. He's just bouncing from place to place. That's actually a smart. A smart time to do it. Yeah. So Monday they come back. Businesses quickly contact the police. So um, sorry, he he forged them, but with his own name. No, with different names. So with okay. with his boss's name and a couple right. other local businesses. Okay. So names. then, how do they trace it back to him? So he is arrested at six p.m. They they uh, describe him. All okay. these different people who are okay. like, yeah, I remember the guy. Uh, he's young, and you know they're they're trying to describe him. And he's working in downtown Boise. He's working at this moving company. So, oh, like, yeah. he's. And he's kind of a new person on the town, too. He's oh, only been here for yeah. about six months. Right. And Poissy is, is a small, yep. friendly town. Yep. So most people know each other by name mm-hmm. at this point. Mm-hmm. That's true. So he's arrested at about 6 p.m., you know, like a couple days after all these checks are, are bounced. And the first thing that the police do is they take him to the restaurant where he, that 50-cent meal. Yep. And they immediately are like, yes, this is the man. And, the you know, the cashier recognizes him. But Frank professed absolute ignorance of the matter and appeared to be utterly mystified. So the police were just about to let him go, but they search his overalls that he's wearing, and he's got another check with somebody else's name on it in his pocket. (laughs) So he's sent to the Ada County Jail, and he's arrested. Um, The newspaper describes him as young and good-looking, and... uh, I mean, if you look at him, he kind of looks like B.J. Novak yeah. from The Office. Yeah, I can see that. Um, yeah. He has kind of a funny-shaped head, though. Like his, we'll his forehead that, seems yes. kind of like it sticks out, which is weird. We will get to that. The later descriptions <laughs> of him. Um, his profile is attractive. Though his face is kind of, it just looks, he has a funny-shaped skull, Yeah, just say. Yeah. So they, uh, the police are advised that someone had picked the lock of a house near the Peasley warehouse and stole a pearl-handled pocket knife. Just so happens that a pearl-handled pocket oh, knife is also in his pocket. What a coincidence. So on top of these forgeries, he's also breaking into houses okay. and stealing things. Okay. And, you know, he's got a job. Like, mm, right. I, why, yeah. why is he doing this? Yeah. And I think, I think it was, it was an opportunity yeah. crime. Right. And uh, so he's arraigned on December 2nd, 1916, where he pleads not guilty on December 4th, 1916. And during the trial, Samuel Romans declares that he did not write this check. J.L. Black, the guy who worked at the confectionery company, identified Frank as the man who wrote the check, but he declined to say positively that it was Frank. And then Donald S. Whitehead took the stand and uh, identified Frank as the man who wrote a $3 forged check. This is when the prosecution brought out other examples of forged checks that they believed Mm. were attached to Frank and kind of compared the handwriting of them. So Frank, of course, he has an alibi for all these things. No, I I was never there. I was at work. I was at all these different Mm -hmm. places. But on December 13, 1916, he is found guilty of forgery. And during his sentencing hearing, he begs for leniency. Uh, He says he has a good record. He's never been in trouble. Uh, He promises that he'll never do it again. But the judge refuses to take any of this and charges him indeterminate term of one to 14 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. And the whole reasoning was that, you know, Frank, you weren't upright, you know, mm. with with all this. You said you right. had alibis for all these things, right. but clearly there, 
there's enough. So he thinks so. that if Frank had been like, yep, I did, yeah. then he would have given him like a couple years. Exactly. Interesting. He would have, it would have been a short term or he would have just sent him on parole and given oh, him like, you know, 12 gotcha. years of parole. And 12 so. years. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, I've never yeah. seen one that long. Yeah. He would have still gotten like <laughs> six months or something. Yeah. But the judge did say that he was satisfied from the evidence that he was guilty, not only of of the one offense for which he was tried and found guilty, but of a series of offenses. Um, and he said, you know what, Frank, if you can prove that you have a, a clean background, we will, you know, we can make a deal and we, mm-hmm, can, mm-hmm. we can cut your sentence. So Frank is sentenced to prison. He arrives on December 15, 1916, the crime of forgery. He had been in Idaho for six months. His sentence is one to 14 years. His age is 22 when he arrives. He's born in Cairo, Illinois. This is all from his intake mm-hmm. papers. His occupation, he wrote cook, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. His height, he's five foot, six inches tall. Complexion, light. Weight, 149 pounds, hair color brown, eye color blue. He has a vaccination mark on his left arm, varicose veins on his right leg, and a scar on his left knee. He's unmarried. His father is alive, but his mother died when he was 15 years old, and he left home at the age of 17. He says he was raised in the Christian church and had three years of high school. He was also a moderate drinker. And his father, Frank F. Jones, is living in Seattle, Washington. They describe his teeth as in poor condition. Uh, Is it because he was eating all that candy? (laughs) That pound of chocolate, yeah. Because of his crime being Mm nonviolent, he's almost immediately given a trustee status and and set to work as a cook Mm -hmm. in the dining hall. Which would make sense if he said his occupation was a cook. Yeah, yeah. And about four months later, the United States enters World War I. Uh Four days after that, on uh, April 10th, 1970, so we joined the war on April 6th, 1917. April 10th, 1917, Frank decides while, you know, utilizing his trusty status, helping bring groceries into the into the prison, he decides to walk off. And guards have their backs turned, and he starts booking it through yeah, the foothills. Yeah. The prison authorities are on his tail. Of course. And he's, you know, he's out and about, and the, the uh, Idaho statesman describes him after his escape. Oh boy. I can't wait. <laughs> he has light complexion with blue eyes, a prominent forehead with peculiarly shaped head that is unusually large, brown hair and of medium height. When he left the penitentiary, he was wearing a white shirt and striped trousers. So just as you were describing him, he kind of has this uh, yeah, like, a large kind of strange shaped yeah. head. His liberty is very short-lived. Okay. At 6 p.m. the next day, a guard named Joe Harris finds Frank at the end of Lover's Lane hiding in a haystack. Okay. There's no evidence he ever found any love. Oh, <laughs> nice pun. Nice one. Uh, his trusty status Good is one. immediately revoked. In Lover's Lane, that is in what we call the River Street neighborhood. And it's it's the area tucked in kind of s- the southern portion of Boise with a street like Ashley and old Pioneer Street. And Lover's Lane or Pioneer Street has actually been paved now, so it's nice okay. this nice little uh, walk. But it's right off of, like right off the connector Myrtle and mm-hmm. and kind of like Thirteenth, kind of tucked okay. in the south side oh. there. And this was like oh okay, this is kind of what they consider like the south side of the tracks, the the bad side. And back in the day, this is where most of the outsiders of the city lived, okay. the immigrants okay. and and people of color. Okay, were were resided there and there's there's a master's thesis that i actually read back in 
during our sesquicentennial uh, by, by a grad student in anthropology named Pam Demo, who described it best. And she said, residents who arrived poor, were of color, or spoke no English, left when they could afford to, and others moved in to take their place. Some stayed in the neighborhood, finding security, friendship, and a sense of community. They invested in their homes, raising families, and by their continued presence, they contributed to the social fabric that connected streets and neighborhoods. So it was a really interconnected little little area, but it was of the people who didn't fit into the right. you know prominently white Boise. So this is where he was point. found. So this is where he's found. Okay, yeah. and he's brought back to the prison. And I you know I imagine this is probably where he thought you no know, one would look for me yeah. here. Yeah. So he applies or he's registered for the draft on June 6, 1917 so not long after this escape just a few months later then a year later he applies for parole on June 3, 1918 sorry can i go back to that first point real quick so he's registered with the draft did all inmates have to register with yes. the draft yeah yeah and interestingly it was from this this collection of seattle washington draft cards okay. that, that he was oh. found because that's where his father lived but sense. uh and and this this collection on ancestry was all these inmates from the walla walla penitentiary oh. and then this one you know idaho state huh. penitentiary inmate and okay yeah yeah i think it's just because of okay. his background yeah he's reassigned to be a tailor where they cut prisoner clothing mm-hmm. and, and trimmed mm-hmm. all that three months later he applies for parole again and is denied september 5th 1918 and finally um, November 11th, 11th day to 11th hour, 1918, um, the war, the hostilities end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just over a month after that, Frank would be dead. So okay. the Spanish flu, yes, yep. starting in the spring of 19, 1918. <laughs> just 19, just 19. <laughs> uh, severe. Listen, guys, it has been a week for <laughs> it has us. It's been a week, yeah. <laughs> This this severe flu is spreading throughout the world, and as soldiers are returning home from the front, they're they're spreading it to all their countries, and you know millions of people across the across the world would would yeah. catch this and it's die. And the worldwide epidemic of the Spanish flu is yeah. fascinating. Yeah, there's a really great podcast that I introduced Anthony to that mm-hmm. can give you a lot more uh, really cool information about this because yeah. it's they do an episode on just the flu in general. It's called "This Podcast Will Kill You." And Shout so if you want, yeah. yeah. So if you want to know more about that, it's, yeah. it is really fascinating. And the reasons that it's called the Spanish flu, because in Spain it was called something else. And mm-hmm. just, I mean, I'm just a big old history nerd, so I could like get into this. Like, isn't that so interesting? And half you'd be like, shut up, just tell me the story. <laughs> but if you guys want to know more about the particulars of, of that flu, definitely go check out this podcast. We'll yeah. tell you. Yeah. And I mean, it was, it was basically a normal flu, except mm-hmm. it would cause these terrible infections that most people it was like it was like they had pneumonia okay. and and they they would their faces would turn blue and you know on top of having a fever and yeah. diarrhea and everything yeah, else it's rough. vomiting and yeah so i mean 650 to 675,000 people in the united states died from this um and about 500 million people about a third of the world's population uh became infected by this virus That's so, so wild i mean this so is a crazy. mass yeah yeah and let me tell you there was no episode more emotional than the episode of downton abbey where <laughs> oh. two characters in one oh. episode died from the spanish flu wow. yeah and was it how long did they have it uh not like days yeah if that yeah it, like it strike struck yeah. super quick and and you know Really, there wasn't much you could do. You could uh, isolate the individuals mm-hmm. that had it, and and cities and towns attempted to do that, but 
you know, once it struck, yeah. it, it, it yeah, struck hard. Yeah. Uh, people were really scared. And, yeah, you know, they shut down the natatorium. Yeah. Um, they, the Ministerial Association in Boise said that it is the conviction of the ministers of the city that all funerals of the victims of influenza should be private as far as possible and that the caskets should not be opened. The warden, Frank Decay, he was actually in Portland, in Oregon, and his, his wife had had a, oh. uh, she, she wasn't sick. Oh. She had an operation over there. And so oh, th- he was over visiting her, but the Portland had said, nope, no one's allowed inside the hospital because we don't mm. want this to spread mm-hmm. any further. So mm-hmm. he could only speak to her through a window oh, sad. from the outside of the building. Yeah. And so when he, he did that, he's like, wow, this is serious. Mm-hmm. So he wrote back to the rest of the prison authorities you know, shut down all visitation. Nobody's allowed to enter outside of those walls. And so they cut that off. And it, it had been on for, for several months. But uh, on December 10th, 1918, 10 inmates became ill with it. And within 10 days, two of them would die. But he was very quick thinking, right? As soon as they displayed symptoms, he shut them up in the hospital, He put them right? in the hospital, yeah. And then they started bringing cots into the hospital. And 53 men caught it within this first month in December when it first arrived. Overall, about 64 would catch it. Wow. Six would die. And that first 10 days after it arrived December 10th, the youngest man, Frank Jones, Mm. our inmate here, he died at 24 years old Mm. of it. So, I mean, this this not only affected, you know, children and the elderly, Mm -hmm. but it affected strong, healthy, young individuals. And that's how, that's why it was so dangerous and scary. The prison physician, Dr. Collister, stated that it is impossible to control the disease by quarantine. The penitentiary was quarantined two months before the influenza epidemic broke out there, and no one was permitted to go in, in or out. There developed 27 cases in 24 hours, until there was a total of 35. I think, however, it would be best to close everything. This will not stop the epidemic, but it will diminish the number of cases developing daily and give the doctors an opportunity to cope with the situation. So, yeah, Frank was one of the unlucky ones and the youngest of all the men. The same day that he died, another man, uh, Ellington Smith, who was 60 years old, also Mm. passed away. And then Fritz Schmidt would die on Christmas Eve. Uh, He was actually scheduled to be released that day. He he ended up dying. (laughs) As well as Joseph Hayes. Both of them died on Christmas Eve, 1918. Yeah, over the next month, three more would would pass away from it. So it was a it was a horrible thing that that struck everywhere and in Boise you know hundreds would die from mm-hmm. it and it's really unfortunate because it's like he was in for such a a small yeah. petty kind right. of a joy crime spree sort of thing and yeah. now he is buried in the prison cemetery correct yes so his father did not have the funds to transfer him outside the walls for burial so he is buried in the prison cemetery unfortunately. Like, if you've come to any of our cemetery tours, uh, most of the gravestones were made out of wooden, with wooden stakes, and those were destroyed. 1948, Warden Lou Clapp, on Memorial Day, you know, he assigns the inmates to go out there and try to document all the names and numbers and everything, and to make uh, cement stones. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they wrote the name Fred Jones with earlier dates. We know for certain Frank is buried out there, and we think that they misread the name there was an inmate named fred jones who was actually sent to blackfoot to the insane asylum like 
two decades earlier. Oh. And so we think that the warden probably just went, uh, mm. clap, went through the reports right. and was like, well, we think it's probably this guy. Oh. So the dates don't match up, but uh, we're we're pretty much certain, or the name doesn't match up, but the dates do. Right. That okay. is, it's our Frank Jones wow. that's buried there. So, yeah. Oh, man. So that was, uh, that's, it's a heavy one. It's yeah. unfortunately that, you know, life and death and prison can be affected by a worldwide, you know, yeah. traumatic event. Well, like but that, food. I think that talks, you know, goes to the point that like prison is not isolated. Yeah. Like yeah. It, it, it isn't just a place where people come and they're mm-hmm. just shut up and no one ever hears from them. And it, it's like their own little world. Yeah. It is still very much influenced by what's going on outside of it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think prison absolutely still is today. And so I think that that's a very good example at, at demonstrating how, uh, you know, these people, these inmates are still people who are still affected by, by the world <laughs> outside of the walls. Right, like, yeah. You know, there is no avoiding that. Yeah. And even with the war, the fact that all these men had to sign up for the draft. And do you know if any of them ever got drafted? Uh, actually, yeah. And okay. if you come into the J. Curtis Earl Weapons Museum at the Old Ben, you can actually come and see some of the men who were released right into the army to join join in the fight. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think we had something similar during the Second World War as well. Mm-hmm. And and so again, like just because they're they're inmates, it doesn't mean that they're not affected by the, by world events. And yeah. so to just kind of remember that these these inmates are people, and they have their they're affected just like anyone else. Absolutely. And so, thank you, Anthony. Yeah. Great per usual. Oh, man. You know so lot. much information. Oh, it's too much. <laughs> All right, Scott. Okay. It has been fun. Thank yes. you. And uh, do your own time. Do your own number. Yeah, we'll see you all next week. Yay. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.